Blog Talk Radio. I have an emergency. What is your location? Yes, indeed, there's a war going on every day, all the time. You would be surprised. Father God, we thank you that you win the war. Thank you that your love prevails. Thank you, Lord God, that the battle is between you and the enemy. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that you defeated him on Calvary. Lord God, I thank you that you defeated death through your blood. You demonstrated your love through the shedding of your blood, through your resurrection, and through including us, Lord God, calling us back into the fullness of the relationship and the fellowship that had been smashed, uh, that had been stretched, that had been broken at the, in the garden. I thank you, Lord, for completing and doing all things well. And I thank you for giving us today eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand that you picked the veil up off our eyes so that we can understand what's going on here. And Lord, I thank you that you give us a heart to follow you, to give, you, give us that strength to give you the praise and the glory and not to grow weary in well-doing, not to grow distracted, not to become overwhelmed. Um, as it was said in the last days, they'd be overcome with um, surfeiting and carousing and partying, or that we'd not be overcome or distracted or look for escapes, but that we would escape in you, Lord God, and stay safe because you are our strong tower and our refuge. I thank you also, God, for the promise, the giving of us uh, uh, power. You said, whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. You've given us the power to forgive and to release people from judgment. And that's cool. And that's powerful. And I thank you also for the promise that you gave us that no weapon formed against us will prosper. That no word said, no deed done, no action taken would be able to be used by the enemy to bring forth any shame, trouble, or reproach. So cover each one of us this day and our families, those who work for us and pray for us those who love us and are seeking your counsel, Lord God, that you cover and keep us with the revelation of your love and your truth, your peace, your rest, and your rejoicing, that we would recover all and not be ashamed. Lord God, you said, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will not be ashamed. So we bless you, Lord, and pray that you bless us now. And thank you for this opportunity in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hey, we're still uh, talking about the devil's favorite Bible scriptures or Bible verses, and he's got a lot of them, actually. Um, Satan's favorite scriptures. Um, last week we talked about the soul that sin shall die. And of course, Satan loves that because the minute you sin, he can slap on you the verdict of death and deserving of death and the accusations and incriminations and guilt and all that stuff that would make you also agree that you deserve to be punished and you're guilty and you deserve to die. So Satan can't really do anything to us, obviously, unless he gets us to agree. But it's pretty simple because he's, you know, holding all the cards. <laughs> And he gets us to, to believe the circumstances or feel the feelings or think the thoughts. And we think all that stuff is from us and it's not. And then he, he gets us to come into an agreement with them. And when that agreement is made, that brings forth wages of sin is death. And it brings forth that final um, destruction. However, there's a war going on between God and Satan for the souls of men. And really the war is between God and Satan. And a lot of times we think that, well, you know, God, it's all about me. Yeah. When we're children, we think our whole world is all about us. But obviously, you know, once you get a little older, your world is not centered on you at all, at all. You're an incidental in the whole plot and conspiracy, actually. You're probably more of a uh, thing that's in the way than anything that's decisive in momentum, in the momentum of what's going on. But so last week we talked about the soul that sin shall die. And I'm going to, you know, kind of run off, uh, just name off a couple of other verses, and then we're going to go back and look at one or two specifically. Judge not, that's Matthew 7, 1, and it's, it's really a powerful centerpiece, really, of the New Testament, of the, the premises, the new kingdom of God established on earth, the new deal, the new way we're going to do things from here on out. Jesus is saying it's not, you know, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, poke out their eye if they poke out yours. God is not into poking people's eyes out, really. Um, but the thing is, it's into forgiving. What that means is you're going to release crime. There was a, a, a crime committed, whatever it was. And sometimes we are not very good at um, 
discerning what the real issue is. And so we just get mad and then we get mad at the closest thing in our energy range, in our inner target area, because anger is simply energy and a sensitivity to injustice. And so when things are not fair, uh, which mostly they're not, it, we're tempted to take matters into our own hands to get mad and resolve issues through whatever force or means that we can. And so therefore we then become as guilty as the one we are charging with guilt. Um, it's kind of like the tables get turned very quickly in that judge not verse. Um, we'll come back to that one in a minute. But the other verses, you know, that Satan uses, like he likes verses like um, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, the wages of sin is death. All have sinned. There's none righteous. Um, yeah, he likes Hebrews 6 a lot. If they fall away, you know, what, it's impossible to renew to them again. So in other words, he's using it to get after people who've sinned and backslidden and whatever. And he's telling basically there's no way back. You know, the, bur- the bridges have been burned. God's too mad. It's you're done. You're, you're out. You lost. Too bad. You threw in the chips too early. But that's a lie. Um, and that scripture is misappropriated or misinterpreted many, many times. God would not write a verse like that and have it interpreted like that. He had a meaning for the verse he wrote there, but it wasn't what we're being led to believe. Um, and then the other ones, uh, the, the one, uh, the um, unpardonable sin. That's another favorite of Satan because he can get people to believe that they've committed the unpardonable sin or even ask the question. Maybe you're just simply asking the question. I'm not sure. Did I commit the unpardonable sin? Well, who's asking the question? Who's that? Is that God? Is that, the, is that from heaven or hell? It's not God. He knows the, the, the beginning from the end. And so he's not going to be asking that question. Um, so it's confusion. Who's trying to get you to buy into the fact that maybe... And so if I've committed the sin against the Holy Spirit, of course, there's no repair of that. But the unpardonable sin, just FYI, is there's only every sin, any sin can be the unpardonable sin if you refuse to ask for forgiveness. If you go with pride and hardness of heart and believe the lie that weakness is uh, or or contrition or humbling yourself is weakness and you got to avoid that, then you're going to believe the lie because Really, the unpardonable sin is simply any sin that we sin against the Holy Spirit or where we refuse to take his, um, the conviction, the, the uh, advice, the drawing of the Holy Spirit to confess the sin and to repent. So the unpardonable sin is the sin that can be, cannot be forgiven, and it cannot be forgiven because it's not been presented to the Father for forgiveness we've held it back we've held it on held on to it as our identity sometimes people get real possessive of these garbage things garbage sins and lies and thinks it's their identity like um, who would I be if I'm not mad or angry or uptight or anxious and so we kind of hold on to our identities in a kind of a very detrimental way but before we go into a little bit further into Matthew, Judge Not, and how that works so well for the devil's purposes, let's go back to the kind of where God began to lay down the law, so to speak. Sometimes you lay down the law to the kids. This is it, kids. All right. In Deuteronomy um, 27 and 28, we're getting towards the end of the um, wilderness journey, and God is laying down the law telling them, here's how we got to stay safe. Here's what's, what you're going to have to do. He says, don't do this. You know, I mean, like, if you're going to go into it, you know, I mean, if the, it's all about family and parents and kids and it's the same deal. The kids are about ready to leave home, so you're going to, you know, re-advise them, kind of refresh them on what to do, what not to do, you know. Uh, don't walk in dark alleys, you know. Um Stay in the light, um, tell the truth, don't trust anybody, um, you know, whatever. But here he's saying, 27 of Deuteronomy, here's the deal. If you sin, Moses commanded his people, verse 11, the same day saying, as they stood on the mountain, you know, when you cross over Jordan, and by that way, that means when you cross over Jordan, when you're now entering into the place where you're going to retake your soul, take back your soul, take back the promised land, take back the thing that's been overrun all these years with the programming of Satan, with the body of death operating systems, with um, lies and fear and um, experiences that have, we've used to 
recreate and, and think and, and make decisions. So he's saying when you're going back to take your soul back, he says, here's what we want to be aware of. Cursed, cursed is everyone who makes a carved image or a molded image, an abomination to the Lord, who works with the work of the hands of the craftsman and sets it up in secret, and all the people shall answer and say amen. In other words, he's giving, bringing the people into a, an agreement, a covenant, a contract. A, uh, they're, they're canceling out any old lies and reaffirming the truth about coming into a relationship of obedience with God. So they're going back and refreshing themselves about the, the Ten Commandments. There's one God, only one God. Thou shalt not have any other gods before me. And of course, today that's one of the most popular um, rules that we break is we have everything before God, including worry in ourselves and the work of our hands and our schedules and our, uh, our relationships and our, our image. And, oh, my goodness, you know, everything is an idol. Everything is consuming us. Um, pain becomes an idol. Um, whatever. It's just all a bunch of garbage. But nonetheless, these things become, come between us and God, and anything that comes between you and God is an idol. And so because it comes before God in your life. And uh, so he was telling him, okay, no graven images. Obviously we're a little more sophisticated. And some of us know, Oh, you don't bow down to a statue or you, and some of us do, but you know, make those golden ephods and, you know, like they did in the old Testament. Of course, you, Oh, then I'm, I'm not an idolatry because I don't do that. Well, unbelief is idolatry because if you're not believing with God's promises and God's goodness and God's word, then you're practicing idolatry because you're worshiping and believing something else. So cursed is the one who makes the carved molded image, or you could put a lot of other things in there an abomination to the Lord. Cursed is the one who treats his father and mother with contempt. Oh, that's one of the signs of the end days. Isn't it? Perilous times will come. They'll be lovers of themselves, haters of parents. You know, uh, this is like where we are. Perilous times have come indeed. And, um, Hating of parents, contempt for parents, rebellion of parents. This is a big a hallmark these days in the practices of, well, it used to be a real popular sin, you know, to sin against your parents. But now it's even worse than that. We're sinning against ourselves, too. But it says, verse um, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse, I mean, chapter 3, verse 1. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. Or men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemous, disobedient to parents. There it is. Unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, etc. And that is a purely perfect description of what's going on in the world today, in the lives of people who don't have Jesus. And even in the lives of people who have Jesus, there's a lot of temptation to rebel against your parents. I know a lot of parents have really screwed up bad, totally, totally unbelievably. I mean, it's like some people, I don't know how they ever, ever got to be parents. I just, you know, but the bottom line is whatever injustices or crimes were committed against you, they, your parents, though you've suffered much at their hand, they're surely not worth going to hell over. Are they? Is anybody in your life that you hate right now that you're mad at, that you're bitter against, is anybody in your life that's given you grief worth going to hell over? And not that God is going to throw you into hell. He has no idea, no intention of throwing anybody into hell. What actually happens is we choose to go to hell, and the devil takes us to hell because we've come into agreement with him. And so God is saying back out by, by confessing your sin, canceling out that agreement, um, and forgiving them. That means you turn the crime over to God. Forgiveness does not mean to forgive and forget. It doesn't mean amnesia, and it is not a feeling. Oh, I feel like I've forgiven them. No, no, no. Feelings and amnesia are not the descriptions of true forgiveness. It's just like true forgiveness is just like doing the dishes. You may not feel like doing the dishes today, but you get up and do them anyway. The dishes get done, whether you felt like it or not. And you didn't have to forget about doing the dishes. You just did them. So true forgiveness is an act of obedience and coming to the Father and saying, Lord God, they have sinned against me. They've sinned against you. They've sinned against whatever, whoever, the family. And you say, and here's the crime. And, here, and you name it. Describe the crime. That's what they do in court. Get, give the details. This is what they did. They charged me with my own birth. They, they made me a burden. They said I was their, uh, you know, I'm the reason why they're poor. I'm the reason why they, they never got ahead. Um, whatever. Or they sexually assaulted me or whatever they did. You turn these absolute crimes, crimes against the heart of God, over to the high court of heaven. 
And then you let the Lord God be the judge and you release them from your judgment. You can't be the judge and let God be the judge. You have to one or the other. And then God will bring justice. So, okay, so the devil likes these things where God is getting real specific and, you know, cursed is the one who makes a carved image. Cursed is the one who treats his father and mother with contempt. Cursed is the one who moves his neighbor's landmark. That means cheats, you know, scandals, swindles. Um, cursed is the one who makes the blind of wander off the way. They're very unkind and, and take advantage of people. Cursed is the one who perverts justice due to the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, just because they're helpless and, and um, vulnerable. Cursed is the one who lies with his father's wife, um, uncovers his father's nakedness. Cursed is the one who lies with any kind of animal, bestiality. Um, lies with his sister, his, um, his, uh, curses one who lies with his mother-in-law, etc. All these ancestral things, curses the one who, um, and other places we have other lists of sins, um, curses the one who attacks his neighbor secretly, curses the one who takes a bribe to slay the innocent, um, curses the one who does not confirm all the words of this law. So Satan's got a lot to work with here. A lot of lovely verses that he can pin on us and say, well, look at what you did. Look at what you did. You did this. You, you are an idolater. You're, an unforgive, you're unforgiving. You hate your parents. I have a right. I have a right. I have a right. And so he begins to stack up these offenses against us, making charges against us. And, and of course, uses that, that judge not lest you be judged scripture in Matthew 7 to indict us, to bring us into um, into court. I'm going to read Matthew 7, 1, and uh, look at that verse a little more carefully here, because like I said, this is the centerpiece of the new covenant because of offenses. There's two things to the new covenant, really, love and forgiveness, and they go together because love is the new law. All the law is fulfilled in this, that you love one another, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's no longer a do, 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 and don't do, don't do, thou shalt, shalt not. It's do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. It's simple. Just love them and forgive them and turn the crimes. Not saying there's no crimes, not saying you don't have to pretend there's no crimes. Just turn those crimes and offenses over to God. So, so with that, that is the way we unhook from legalism. See, if we stay under the law, the Old Testament is full of law. If you will, then I will. I'll bless you if you're obedient. And if you're not obedient, all these curses will come upon you. That's Deuteronomy 28 where he says, um, if you follow me this day, all these good things are going to happen. If you don't follow me, then all these bad things are going to happen. He says, um, but it will come to pass, verse uh, 28, 15. Hold on, I'm going back. I'll be going back to Deuteronomy a second. He says, it'll come to pass if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed in, shall you be in the country. It doesn't matter where you live. Cursed shall you be your basket and your kneading bowl, the things you gather, the, the going to the grocery store, the, either the way you prepare your food. Cursed shall be the fruit of your body and the produce of your land, your crops, your cattle, your children, the increase of your cattle, the offspring of your flocks. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed when you go out. You can't get away from it. It's just all over. It's on you. It's like the plague. Verse 20. The Lord will strike you with cursing, confusion, and rebuke in all that you set your hand to do until you are destroyed, until you perish quickly because of the wickedness of your doings in which you have forsaken me. And the Lord will make the plague to cling to you until he's consumed you from the land in which you're going to possess. Now, this sounds like a terrible God. I mean, just like a mean, scary, fearful, I better do what I'm told God. But if you're, if you're going to, if God is really like that, you know, mean and scary and, and coercive and, 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 and intimidating, and, you know, threatening, if you don't do this, 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 then, then I will do this and this and all these plagues and all this bad stuff and everything you try to do is going to go bad. And so people get this idea. And it's, it's, that's the literal interpretation of what's going on here. And God says, I will. This is the Lord will make the, claim, the curse to cling to you, the plague. Okay, the Lord is taking responsibility for the outcome here. But has the Lord set it up? Is he the one who wants it? Or has he made a commandment that was for the life of the people to keep them safe? And Satan has taken advantage of that commandment to uh, trick the people into sinning and then call for their condemnation, call for their judgment. And that's exactly what the law does. It, it's it's a, a protection, but it's also a device Satan can use to destroy. 
And that's why when God brought Jesus through the New Testament, New Covenant, he wanted to bring us into a new way. Jesus said, I am the way. Um, love one another. So he's saying, now here's the deal. I'm going to write my laws in your heart. It's not about literally, you know, do you know how many people can actually keep the Ten Commandments and they're jerks? They're actually full of bitterness and gossip and self-righteousness and religious hatred and contempt and scorning and scoffing. For, uh, they, you can keep the letter, Jesus says, the letter of the law kills he said it himself, and he does not want us to be killed by this letter of the law that was set up or initially because of Satan, his demanding um, his access to the people of God. And God says, okay, no, 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 we're going to define, we're going to describe, these are my people, and I'll keep them safe if they do this. And say it's very well, but if they break that law, if they walk out and wander out from under that umbrella, they are mine, and I will rain down terror on them. And God says, okay, but permit it to be so for now. Did Jesus not say that to John the Baptist? Are this, is this not the case in your life? Permit this garbage to be so for now. Not that God wants us to permit it. I think he wants us to resist the devil, of course. But there's some things that Jesus had to put up with too. I mean, he had to put up with them. He didn't just get to call the 12 legions of angels to take him down off the cross, not a good ceremony. He permitted something that we have to permit as well. Why? Because love calls for suffering and perseverance. Love calls for us to show that we truly do mean what we say when we say, I love you, God, and I'm willing to follow you wherever you go, follow you to death to prove that. Not that I need to prove it to you, or, but I, I love you. And so love becomes passion. Love becomes the, the power, the, power most, the, the thing Satan cannot cannot get his uh you know when you're digging out a big rock you know you got to have a lever of some sort a, a shovel a pickaxe or something to get that big rock out of there satan has nothing he can get around love he, he love stops him he can't dig it out he can't love prevails love never fails when you're when you've got love going on he stopped in his tracks and love doesn't always look like what we think it does on valentine's day by by no means is that the description of love Polygamy. So back to Deuteronomy. So God says, yeah, he's got to send the plague because Satan is requiring it. Because Satan makes accusations as he did. We know the story of Job. If you don't know it, go read it carefully. People avoid the book of Job until they get something really bad happening to him. Then they say, I'm in the book of Job. Well, good. Read it. Find out what's going on there so you can understand what's going on in your own life. God gave us this for a, it reveals a mystery here. This isn't all about Good people have good things happen to them. Bad people have bad things happen to them. And that's the end of the story. Uh-uh. A lot of very, very good people have very, very bad things happen to them. And it's not, we say, is God doing that? Why is God doing that to them? God is not doing that to them. Satan is requiring it. Satan is asking that they be tested like he did with Peter. Jesus said, Peter, warning you here, Satan has petitioned to have permission to sift you as wheat. Satan does not believe you're genuine. He doesn't believe that our work, our love, our relationship is real. He's going to put the pressure on you. Turn out the kibosh on this. Cut this thing down. He says, but I've prayed for you. That, that, and when you're converted, so Jesus knew his prayer was already answered. He says, when, when you're converted. In other words, when you really get this thing, when you understand it, then strengthen your brethren. And this is what it's all about. This, this conversion thing, this really switching over from, you know, um, just going through the motions to picking this up yourself little kids when they're you know going through the motions of obeying because that's they get in trouble to get if they don't at some point they've got to switch over and get converted into doing this for their own good not because somebody else is making them you understand and this is what conversion is with god is we're, we're doing it for our own good not because god is is forcing us and and of course if we fall down in this the devil's right there to point the finger and say, God, I have a right to, pick, to, to, to bring this curse on them because they did this and this and this. And the unfortunate thing is that a lot of the curses that you and I are under are very old curses. They're familiar spirits that have come down to generational bloodlines for many, many generations. And as a matter of fact, you can tell they're, they're from the generations because you can see the patterns. Because the curses are, they come in forms of patterns that repeat themselves over and over again. And you'll see the same pattern recycling in your life probably three or four times at least, if not maybe daily. Um, and because those sins have not ever been dealt with before the throne of grace, God says the sins of the fathers are visited down unto the children to the third and fourth generation. Mercy. 
to tens of thousands of those who love me. So God is saying there is a place where we can break the curse through the love of Jesus. Does that make sense? And so what happens is when we are in that place where um, the devil is accusing us, bringing this charges before the high court of heaven and um, wants to press his case against us. And obviously we don't even know sometimes that we're being accused of anything, but he's looking, he's meticulous. He's, he does his homework. He's poking around, seeing if he can find some little, little, little flaw, some little, little thing that he can bring, make into a big thing and, and bring before God and say, God, I have a right. I have a right. So Satan loves these kinds of verses where, you know, it looks like God is, what says God, he says, I bring peace and calamity. He says that in the same verse, in the same sentence, both peace and calamity. Well, our temptations think, well, God's crazy. God, but there's got to be some explanation behind this where God would say, I, you know, I'm bringing the, the plague. I'm bringing the curse. I, I bring the peace. Because ultimately God is saying with that, he's saying, I take full responsibility because you are my workmanship created in Christ Jesus under good works. And I've got this. It's my deal. I got it. I'm not dropping you. Don't panic. Don't freak. Just follow me. And in the New Testament, follow means, you know, it's it, following is not chasing. God does not beat the sheep. He didn't chase the sheep. He didn't. He walked out and they followed him. Why? Because they loved him. They believed the shepherd was good, had their best interest in mind and would not lead them into the den where the wolves were or lead them into a barren place, but that the shepherd knew what he was doing. And they simply, that's the image Jesus wants us to trust him, follow him, no matter what it looks like or feels like, or what other people are saying or what the devil is saying about you, just follow Jesus because Jesus knows everything. And he knows your heart. He knows your heart better than you do. You may have been deceived into believing a lie about yourself. I wonder how many lies we believe about ourselves. I'm bad. I'm stupid. I'm guilty. I'm not good enough. I'm going to make it. It's my fault. Whatever. I give up. You know, those are all lies. And it's not about being good enough or, or being no good. You are good because you're made by God who is good. And everything he makes after his image is good. And the devil is trying to corrupt the image of God in us by making us accept another version of ourself, and that is that I am no good in that. So when the devil got all lined up with all these laws in the Old Testament, Jesus came and said, okay, guys, don't fall for it. Here's the deal. Offenses will come. People will break the law. You will break the law. Other people will hurt you. Um, it's going to happen. And so when it happens, you're going to have to, people will get after you. They'll get after your stuff. They'll slander your name. Uh, and we're tempted, you know, to to judge them. And actually that verse judge not lest you be judged. Um, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the same measure you use, it will be, be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck out of your eye. And look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite. Who said that? Jesus used that word. Hypocrite. Yeah, verse 5, he sure did. It's red letters. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs. Dogs? Is he judging some people as being dogs? Sounds like it, doesn't it? Do not cast pearls before swine, your pearls before swine, unless they trample you under their feet and turn again and tear you into pieces. But in the Amplified, the word judge means several words. It means judge, criticize, or condemn. They all, this, you know, the English word is judge, but here we have criticize, condemn. You know, the reason it's really stupid to judge people is because you never know the whole story. Because the devil's always got it set up that there's a, a plan within a plan, a plot within a plot, and you only have a little piece of it. And to, to judge God is even more foolish. God's not there. God's not fair. You know, you and I have absolutely no idea. It's like a little minnow sitting in the corner of the swamp trying to describe to you the ocean that he's never seen. He doesn't even know he doesn't know the ocean, but he doesn't describe an ocean. He describes you as little environment or what he sees. That's us. We're like little minnows caught in our, trapped in our little, little world, our little, you know, everyday ordinary world. And we're trying to describe and think we know the eons of eternity and God. So when we judge people, we're making the assumption that we know what's going on and they did something wrong and they should be punished. And that's the end of the story. But God is saying, no, 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 no. Hold off. 
You forgive them, release the crime to me, the offense, and let me do the judging. Does that make sense? Let me do the judging. Okay, so the offenses are going to come. Um, you're going to be struck down with them, tempted to nurse that thing. How many of us are being destroyed today by something that happened to you when you were a child that you just can't get over? You just can't get rid of it. You just can't forgive it. You don't even know. You're mad. You're angry at yourself, at your circumstances. You've projected all that negative garbage, that, that wicked in unfairness and insensitivity into your current world. So everything becomes tainted with the first and original sin against you. And you just, everything now is colored negative, bad, mad, angry. You know, people have to walk on eggshells around you um, because you can't let go of it because you, it's becomes, it's like you're so familiar with that thing that it's part of you, but it's not part of you. It's like an add on a cling on. It's, it's like, you get used to it. You get used to being mad. You get used to being um, ripped off, taken advantage of, set back. Um, you get used to your hopes being dashed and, and, and your dreams destroyed. You get used to it. And, and it's not fair. And it's not right. But if you're angry, stop for a second and take a, a look and ask the Lord, what, what's the root? What's the injustice behind this that's creating all this symptoms of anger and thrashing around and throwing things and mad at people and kicking things. What's the root of it? And, and God will show you the root of the injustice and then go back there and deal with that through forgiveness and then let go of it. And once you forgive, that's the good part about forgiveness is now you can trust God. If you trust God, he's pretty fair, pretty just, wouldn't you say? He's got it. He'll make it absolutely fair to the, eye, to the eyelash. It's going to be restored. So the hair on the head, is nothing is going to be lost. So but if, if we suffer, um, you know, the, and take on these offenses, it actually gives the devil a chance to set us up to react, to um, judge so that he can judge us back. Because then he goes to God with his favorite verse and says, God, I have a right to judge them because they're judging other people. I have a right to press these charges because they press charges. I have a right to rip them off because they rip somebody off. I have a right to poke out their eye or ask for their eye to be poked out because they took advantage of someone else and poked out their eye. So you see, Satan is doing his, his demonic law of justice is an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. To him, that's fair. But that's not right. See, there's a difference between what's making something fair and making something right. Really. God makes it right. Satan tries to make it fair, but he's never fair because he's always on his own side and he doesn't care about what happens to anybody else. So when, when Satan can get us over that barrel, judge not, or with what judgment. God is actually saying this to warn us, just like when he said, the soul that sins shall die, he's warning us again. If you sin, the devil's right there to pick you off. You know, I've given you these commandments as a protection. Stay within the boundaries. And then when the, when the law of love came, he says, now, here, we're going to put laws right in your heart. I'll send the Holy Spirit to help you, you know, administrate those laws and just be okay. I've got it. Don't, don't try to pick, don't try to defend yourself. Jesus never defended himself before Pilate, did he? Jesus never... When, when, he was, when they were there cackling and hackling and heckling him on the cross, what did he do? He didn't say anything. He just almost like he didn't even pay any attention to him. He was busy. He was busy dying. He was busy doing it right. He was busy staying focused, not on himself or defending himself or trying to make them understand right now what's really going on. He was busy dying and focusing on forgiving them, uh, for focusing on you know, the big line in that whole, that whole drama uh, dialogue was, it is finished. He had to put that one out there. If he wouldn't have said that, it is finished, the devil could just go on and on and on and on and on. But when Jesus died, he said, it's done. Every drop of blood, every breath I have, full sacrifice here, held nothing back. He, you know, and so it was finished. So there you have it. So Satan is trying to make judging become so natural to us. Um, because we're so insensitive to the injustices because we're made by God to be, be sensitive to those things. So, you know, you can tell because the first words out of your mouth when something isn't fair is you say, I'm mad, that's not fair. Or we say, that's not fair and I'm mad. It's basically you've judged it by saying it's not fair. And you've also agreed with, I'm mad. So watch your words, what's coming at your heart, what's in your heart comes out of your mouth. So there's, there's a lot of um, 
you know, debate actually that's going on in your soul every day against your spirit. And we, so let's, let's go on. So he's got this verse, Satan, judge not lest to be judged. And then he, he ties that in with Romans chapter four. In Romans chapter four, he says, you know, the, the word of God. So he always goes back to the court of heaven with you said, God, you said, God, your word says. And of course, God's word says, but if he's perverting it, he uses God's word all the time. He uses God's word against you. He uses God's word to make you not read, want to read God's word. He makes you feel, you feel indicted by God or judged by God because the devil focuses on all of his favorite verses and creates a perception in us that God is either bipolar or he's crazy or he's uh, unpredictable. And then we have a problem. So in verse in Romans chapter four, we go back to God's original intention. He's reviewing his dialogue with the first person that he called, which was Abraham. And he called Abraham when Abraham came from a pagan family, by the way, very, very pagan family. Um, we have other sources that tell us that Abraham's father was a general in Nimrod's army or a member of his cabinet of, of officials. And they, and Abraham had, his father worshipped many, many gods, many gods. And when Abraham got ready to follow the one true God, he says, Dad, what are you doing here with all these dumb gods that can't even stand up by themselves? We've got to carry them around. And, and I, finally, obviously, he must have convinced his father that that was right. So his father followed him out of Ur of the Chaldees. But he did not follow him all the way to the promised land. I don't think he even actually lived long enough to do that. But, but in Romans, going back to 4, he says, verse 13, for the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law. God's making this very clear. It is not the law who's going to bring the promise. Because law requires work and obedience. Promise doesn't. Promise is given because you love someone. Because of you. You make the promise to them. Not because of something they did, but because of something you are or want to do for them. You make a promise. God has made promises to us. He does not lie. That's really good news. If God's made a promise that he's never going to leave us or forsake us, then what are you doing feeling lonely and abandoned? You know, sucking your thumb and feeling sorry for yourself. God is there. So why don't you just stop listening to the liar, the poor, poor me and self-pity, tell them to go to the pit and get out of your life, cast them out, tear down that stronghold, tell yourself the truth and say, you know what? God does not lie. We all know this in your spirit. You do know this, that God does not lie. And that God is good. Why do you know this? How do you know this? How do you know you know this? Well, how do you see? How do you hear? You just hear. You just see. Do you have to understand everything about your eyes before you can see or use them? No. You just do it. And with God, this is built right into us to know the truth, to recognize the truth. Now, that truth has been covered over, obscured. Um, Many versions have been put in to to sit right next to it. It's like you want to hide the Bible. You put it in a million-volume library, and you stick it on a shelf in the back corner. It's there, but so is everything else. And that's what the lies are. So God made this promise to Abraham. It was a promise God made out of his love. God was saying, "Um, I'm going to do this. Okay, I'm going to call this man. I'm going to fashion this people for myself. Do you know that there wasn't anybody out there in those days except for Noah and Shem and uh, I think Shem's son was Enos or something. There's only a, like a handful of people that knew the one true God. The rest of them had already, already by the 150 year mark, Power Babel shows up, already been corrupted. So you know that, you know, God didn't have many, but God says, no, I'm going to go get me a people and I'm going to go get me a land. Now Satan had everything. He had all the people, he had all the land, and he wasn't happy that God was going to stake his claim and that little sliver of land we now call Israel. Wow, that piece of dried up bushes and desert and just size of New Jersey. God's, God picks that little tiny place, the most obscure, you know. I mean, it wasn't lush and beautiful and it didn't have uh, whatever we all think is lush, lush and beautiful and whatever. God just picks this little sliver of and Satan has a hissy fit, totally. And he tries to kill God's one man on the scene right then, Abraham. And so God says, I'm making you promise, Abraham, to your seed, not through the law, but through my word, through my mouth. I'm going to stand behind it myself. There is nothing bigger than that. 
and through the righteousness of faith. This is how you're going to get this promise by believing. Simple. How do you get it? By believing. Not doing, not achieving, following and believing. So, four, he says, verse 14, for if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made of, made void and the promises of no effect. So if the, the law keepers, the perfect ones, the ones who keep all the rules are going to be the heirs, then what's the point of faith? It's pointless. What's the point of the cross then? It is pointless. Why does anybody have to die if we're going to all be good enough to get to heaven eventually on our own by ourselves anyway? You know, God's wasting his time. You know, so he he's saying here, faith is going to get, get you the promise. The promise comes through faith, believing, because the law brings about wrath. Verse 15, the law brings about wrath. Oh, Satan loves that. If the law brings about wrath, then all I have to do, he thinks, is get them to break the law like we did even Adam, get them to break the law. And we have the wrath of God. We have the judgments. We have the curses. It all comes, you know, I get this windfall of, you know, everything is mine. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Okay, so Satan wants to keep the law alive. Jesus said, it is finished. The law is okay. It's done. I got it. I'm now, it's now love. Don't go with the law, go with love. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. So obviously then the, uh, the opposite is also true. Where there is law, there is transgression. And Satan wants to make sure there's transgression. Because transgression means to cross the line. Okay, God and God, God put a line, drew a line. The line is here. Okay, if you're on this side of the line, you belong to me because that's my law. But if you go over here, then I will have to remove blessings because that's the way it's going to be because Satan's going to make sure those blessings go away. I'm not going to take them away. Satan is going to make them go away, and he's going to say, I have a right to do that. And God's going to say, yeah, 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 that's the rule. That's the deal. Yeah, you're right. So God is permitting some things to be so for now. Does this make sense to you? You think that this is crazy. You better know what you you better know what the word of God says. Satan is all about the law. He's a legalist. He's the biggest enforcer of the law in the universe and he's also the biggest tattletale and he's also the biggest law breaker. Have you ever had a sibling like that? Honestly, this is just like living in a family with kids. They set you up, they tattle on each other, they try to make themselves look good, you look bad, get you in trouble. It's the same thing only he's a not really a a blood sibling of ours but he's a hater of us because he he's jealous of us he you know so it says through it is therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the so that the promise might be sure to all the seed not to those who are of the law but also not only to those who are of the law but also to those who are of the faith of abraham who is the father of us all so he's saying the people of the old testament who did keep the law that was their dispensation that was their rule keep the law that became righteousness because what they were doing there in obeying it they they were following the truth following jesus so to speak they were following god they were putting god first they were heeding him and they didn't have the fullness of the revelation of love and the sacrifice of the cross yet but they just by faith did what they were told and obeyed god's law now god says but it's it's not the 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 Inheritance does not come down through the technical seed of Abraham. It comes down through the seed, one seed, Jesus, and those who are in him. He, there was one, Abraham had a lot of kids after all was said and done. He had quite a few boys and girls and, you know, more than, it was more than just Isaac and Ishmael. He got married to Keturah and they had a bunch of kids and that was way after Sarah died, of course. Um, and then you have, you know, Ishmael had kids, Isaac had kids. And so there's a lot of, those that claim to be Abraham as their father. But there's only one that really claimed that, that could claim that Sarah was his mother. And that was the deal. It was a combo. Had to be Sarah and Abraham. That was the, the promised the offspring. And the rest of them were his offspring. But he says, you're not getting into heaven just because you're the seed of Abraham. You know, he was talking, Jesus, Paul was talking in Romans to the Jews. Come on, guys. You know, it is, it's the Gentiles are in too. We're going to let the, God didn't just do this for one little sliver of people. He opened it up. And that's what Satan was afraid of, that God would open it up to everybody, which unfortunately for the devil, you know, was exactly what happened. The thing he feared the most came upon him. So we have, you see how Satan uses the offense, the injustices, the bitterness to get us to sin. 
And then he can go to God and say, but yeah, but God, the wages of sin is death. And they sin. Therefore, I have a right to kill them. I have a right to take their life. And that's why a lot of people come into these close encounters with death. And, you know, there is a point in which man wants to die and then the judgment. There is a, a right time, a God-appointed time when people are to die. And usually, according to Psalm 90, they should be getting um, 70 or 80 years of life. However, a lot of them are cut short. You say, well, why are they cut short? That's not fair. That's not right. Well, we'll talk about that in one minute when we get back. We're going to do a little commercial break and be right back. By the way, if you have a question, call me, 347-215-8051, and we can talk. Okay, so now I'm saved. I'm not living like I used to, but I find myself still sinning. So now I am a saved sinner, right? But how much can I sin and still be saved? Maybe I've really blown it and lost my salvation, or... Maybe I really didn't get saved at all because the more I try to be good, the worse I seem to get. And if I can't be good at being good, maybe I should just forget this whole thing and go back to being good at being bad. All this being saved and living to please God stuff just isn't working for me. Many believers are caught in these age-old struggles. Marjorie Cole has prepared a must-hear CD entitled, If I'm Saved, Why Do I Still Sin? This timely CD takes a clear and close look at the meaning of forgiveness and the futility of trying to be good in order to be saved. Marjorie helps you discover truth from God's Word that will give you the power and freedom to live without the frustration, discouragement, and self-condemnation you may have been going through. To order your copy of If I'm Saved, Why Do I Still Sin? Go to liferecovery.com. Again, go to liferecovery.com. Amen. Amen. If I'm saved, why do I still sin? Well, that's a very fair question. And why do we still sin? Well, because the deceiver is still out there and he's still trying to trick us into making choices um, to bite his hook. And then he can accuse us of sinning. And of course, you know, Satan has assumed, and I think, and he's abs- he's right in this assumption, that we are the weaker vessel between God and us. We are by far the easiest to take out. We are the most vulnerable. We're the easiest to pick on. We've got, you know. So he really focuses a lot of his attack against God. He, he's real. His real target is God, but he really focuses a lot of that pressure, stress, attack upon us to get us to cave and to sin, and then believe lies. There's two objectives in the war that Satan has against God. Everything is to, you know, make God look bad and make God look stupid for believing that he could find someone out there to love him, etc. So he's, he's saying, God, that was really dumb. You gave him a free will. That was really, I'll prove to you how stupid that was, God, that you gave those weak little sissy babies who can't even tie their own shoes this big thing called free will, I will take it away. I will take away their everything, including their own concept of who they are. I will make them so deceived and confused that they'll think that I'm God, that you are bad, and that they love me, and that I am good. Oh, my. And so all he's done is try to play the role of God in our lives by making our lives difficult, setting us up to sin. He has a number of variety of ways of, of, of taking us down. He can either, you know, flatter us and pull us along with participation and um, blessings, demonic blessings, you know, so that everything's going good. It's nice. I don't need anything. Therefore, God is not on the top of my list if he's on my list at all. Or he can make your life so miserable and you get so frustrated with God and where is God and why isn't he helping me and all this hurts too much and I can't do this. So he can push us either way to break up the relationship that we have with God. So the wages of sin is death. God is really in the business of redeeming, saving, restoring, healing, um, regathering his people unto himself. Um, But we have all sinned, and that's not who we are. But Satan is attacking our identity. He wants you to believe that you're bad, that you're a sinner, so that you will not receive the revelation of who lives in you and the righteousness of God. But really, Satan is trying to make this all about me, all about you, all about our survival. I mean, 
first of all, he pretends like he doesn't exist. He wants us to believe he's not there when he's so there. And, you know, nobody gets to talk about the devil. Oh, you're giving him too much credit. You talk about the devil all the time. Well, you know what? If you're in a war, seriously, if you're in a war, you're going to talk about the war pretty much all the time. I mean, everything, everything is affected by the war. Your, your food supply is affected. If you're living in a war zone and they're dropping bombs on you and, and you know, there are snipers out there and, and they're, you know, putting nerve gas up in the atmosphere um, and, and they're, you know, spies in your, your city and, and treachery in your streets and your kids have to go to school. Everything's going to be about war. Everything. And you're not going to be able to deny it. As a matter of fact, that's why we don't like war, because we can't deny it, because it's so there. It's messing with my sugar supply, my rubber tires, my, you know, back in the days, everything was rationed. Everybody was affected. Everybody was involved in the war. Even those where the war wasn't dropping the actual bombs on people over in this country, they were all involved in the war, the war, the war. Everything's about the war. But nowadays, there's a war going on, and nobody wants to talk about the war because it's an invisible war. We've got to pretend like it is not there, and it's not coming, but it is coming, and it is here already. It is not only at the door. It's already in the house. So when we talk about the devil, we have to talk about, we're talking about the war. We talk about the devil because he is the enemy, and we have to understand what he does and how he is so insidious. And God does not want you to be ignorant. He doesn't want us to be ignorant of the devices that Paul says. We're not ignorant of the enemy's devices. He is divisive. He's there to divide. He's there to set you up in opposition to yourself, to to divide you against yourself. He's there to destroy the house. He's there to take you out, take out your family, remove the, the protections that God has put in place entice us, incite us to sin, entice us to sin, seduce us to sin. And, and all at the same time, we believe the devil doesn't even exist. But I'm going to tell you something. As we get closer to the unveiling of the revelation of the return of Jesus Christ, which, of course, the book of Revelations is all about, um, people are going to do one of two things. This is what the Bible says. They're going to get more godly and pursue God, or they're going to get more ungodly. And I, if I were you and I feel myself getting colder and more um, disinterested, more pursuing the things of the world, I would start to freak out because you know what? That means you're getting, you're getting pulled to the other side. And what's going to happen, and this is just a little aside to the, to the war, but there is a wrap-up to this war. There's an ending. Uh, Jesus Christ himself is coming back riding a white horse with tens of thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people of his riding with him in the victory and he's going to come down to the, the valley of Megiddo in Israel and he's going to and there's a war set up against him I believe that everything the devil's got he's pulling out all the stops all the technology all the aliens uh, the, the one world government the one world church all the people who hate God or have been you know given the mark of the beast and, and don't know what they're doing anymore they're all going to be there the two million man army yeah and i don't know if that army is human or not but anyway all the the plagues the pestilences the bowls the trumpets the seals everything has been done and jesus is coming back to slay the enemy there is an end to this war but right before that end there's going to be a time of testing a time of and those who are getting cold colder and colder are going to be more and more vulnerable to taking the mark of the beast. And the mark of the beast is probably will be maybe a little stamp of some sort or chip or whatever in your hand or your forehead that it will be, but that's not the problem. You can rip a chip out, you know, but the thing is it's going to have taken over transformed, changed you. It's like a vaccination that split your DNA open and putting something else in your DNA to make you no longer completely human. You won't be human. You won't care anymore whether you're saved or not. It's, they won't care. They will. They'll take the mark and they're going to fade from their, their human life is going to be contaminated and and irreversible. The loss you can't undo it. You can't take a shot. Uh, there's no medical treatment to undo the mark of the beast. So once you take that, that's it. Um, because people are going to be afraid. They can't eat their food, buy and sell, and and so that little immediate inconveniences of shopping and providing um, daily bread and favorite restaurants is going to be, you know, curtailed if you don't take the mark. And some people don't want to be inconvenienced, but I tell you what, you're going to be totally inconvenienced at the end because if you can't be saved, because God isn't going to throw you into hell, you won't want to go to heaven 
You won't want to. God isn't going to. God doesn't send people down. He didn't. He didn't make hell for people. Although devil, the devil, what the devil gets, the devil collects and he takes to where he is, and that's where he is. So you get to go with him, and um, so he gets rightfully what is his. And so of course God has done everything he can to cry out, "Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest." And the devil's saying, "Right, God, you're such a you're 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 so undependable." I'll I'll do it myself. And that's one of the biggest lies and sins we commit every day is the sin of it's up to me. And if you're suffering from weariness and stress, you know, and can't rest and don't rejoice and don't receive the revelation of Jesus Christ, then you've already bought into the devil's favorite scriptures and you're basically being worn out by him. There is none righteous but one, and that is Jesus Christ. But if I know the truth that I am in him and he is my righteousness, then am I righteous? battle quest for righteousness is done even though i may live another 80 years on the planet my quest for righteousness now all i do is walk in that righteousness to live is christ christ in me let christ live his life through you and then the stress is on him the worry the pressure is on him he already knows your heart let him show you who he is and then as you learn out who he is, then you'll find out who you are. But the biggest, one of the biggest favorite lies of the devil, and there's many, of course, one of his favorites is distraction. You know, I got to do it myself. It's up to me. Can't trust God. Where is God? All of these scriptures that Satan has put together in the mind to make you to believe that God isn't really there for you. God isn't good. God is the one doing all this stuff. And He's the one sending all the calamities. By the way, just my opinion here, but I believe it's correct. God has not even begun to judge the earth. Not even begun. Jesus, when he was questioned about that, he says, everybody's condemned already. John 3, 18. Um, you know, why would God already judge or condemn what's already condemned? That's stupid. So Jesus says, um, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish. By the way, that's one of Satan's most hated verses. He's got favorites and he's got ones he hates. So here he says, um, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And it says, um, in another place it says, For this is the condemnation that Christ came into the world and they, and they rejected him. Um, the Spirit of God has come into the world and they did not receive him. It says, verse um, 18, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. In um, Revelations, there's a verse that says, um, okay, I think I can find it. I think it's 12. Let me just turn to that a second. You should read the book of Revelations and refresh yourself on get ready for this. All right. Um, let's see. Um, Revelation. Okay. Um, let me just see if I can. I'll get back to that. Let me get back to that on you. It's Revelations 12. I think it's 4. Let me just check. Um, no, no, it's not 4. But God is, is not judged the world yet because the fact that he is about to judge the world. He's not judged it out of his own um, wrath. He's still in the mercy stage where he's having mercy on us because he knows he knows what's happened. He knows how the enemy has tried to, um, to, to tear us up and not give us a chance to know the truth. And God wants us to know that he is with us, that he will never leave us or forsake us, and that he is about to judge the earth. Um, yeah, let me see. Where is it? I know it's in Revelations, but let me just check my notes here. Oh, yes, here it is. I'm sorry. It's 15 4. Um, let's read it. All right. I knew I read it somewhere in Revelations. It's just a matter of finding it. Okay. Now, this is about the preparation for the bold judgments, the last ones. Uh, um, he's talking about great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear, who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been, have been manifested. 
So we see that God's judgment for God in, in verse um, Revelation 14, 6 and 7, it says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, quote, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his, his judgment has come. For the hour of his judgment has come, who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. So his judgments have been manifested through this. John says we're condemned already. So God is not judging us yet, but he will bring his final judgment when he brings his final um, culmination to all of the lies and all of the uh, activities of Satan. So Revelation 14, 6, he says, fear God and give glory to him for his, uh, the hour of his judgment has come. Jesus said, my, um, you know, um, this is Satan's hour when he's and he is and he's coming and he has nothing in me. So there are times dedicated to certain situations and certain permissions. And this time of judgment is when God now gets to judge. So what's happening now with all the bad things that are happening? Well, bad things are happening because the evil one rules the world and he sets up to destroy things, judge things, confuse people, bring judgments because we have agreed with him. And when you agree with him, he gets to bring, he gets to judge. Now, judge not lest you be judged. Well, of course, that verse is going to finally be used on him. Yay. Judge not lest you be judged. He's going to be judged for all the stuff he did to judge us and set this thing up on, on its head. And God is going to judge him. But remember, this demonic judgment stuff, we attribute to God. God is not judging. He sent his son to save the world. His spirit is still here to redeem and the judgments that are coming, that have come, the demonic judgments, the bad things that happen to people, to situations, natural disasters, blah, blah, blah. That's not God's doing. God wouldn't do that. Why would he do that? If you were a parent, would you do that? Would you go set your adult child's house on fire just to teach him a lesson? Would you give your, your young child cancer just to teach him how to, how to love you? Really? Is that twisted or what? So let's just realize God is in relationship. He's in a family. He's seeking love. And by the way, Lord willing, next week, we're going to talk about the vindication of God. How does God get vindicated in all this? Because all of these lies and accusations have been made against him and about him forever and a day. How is he ever going to straighten all this out? How is he ever going to get us to know the truth here? By the way, we didn't get to the the, uh, the Romans, Hebrews, I'm sorry, Hebrews 6, 4, 6, about if you fall away, it's impossible to renew again um, those who have tasted of the good word of God, blah, blah, blah. What he's saying in Hebrews 6 is that there's no other way to get back. There's only one way. It's always the same way. It's been that same way when you walked away from it. It is Jesus Christ, the cross. Of course, God knows people are going to be convinced that they backslidden and that they're terrible. And of course, there's got to be a way for them to come back. And Jesus is a way. And so he is the way, not a way, the way. And so when you sin, turn around, just go back the same way you came, go back to Jesus and because he's just saying in that verse that there's no other way but the cross. The cross is the only way. Um, there's not going to be another way given. There's not another option. There's not going to be, a, a, you know, many roads, all roads lead to heaven. No, no, and no. It's Jesus Christ. And so when you get tempted to believe that, um, verse 6, if they fall away, um, it is for as impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves, the son of God and put him to open shame. Notice here that what he's talking about in verses one and two, which we didn't read, he's talking about the, the basic elemental uh, primary uh, uh, elements of the gospel, the elementary principles of Christ, which are, um, uh, you know, believe, repenting um, from dead works, faith towards God, baptism, laying out of hands, resurrection of the dead, blah, 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 eternal life. But he says, but let's go on to perfection. Let's move on now. We've finished the second grade. Now let's go on to the fourth and fifth and sixth grade. And he's saying, you know, if you if you fail fifth grade, you know, you're still going it, to, it, still what you learned in the first grade, second grade, is still what's going to happen. That's, that's element. You don't go back and redo first grade with a whole different set of, of principles because you failed the sixth grade. You, you, you build on the same truth. You can't renew it. You, there's, it's the cross. It's always the cross. It's forever the cross. It's impossible to, to, to do it a different way. 
you know, you come back through the same way. Renew to them again. Um, they got it. We, it they, you can't crucify the Lord again. He died once. So you have to repent, come back to the same way that you fell away from. That's what he's saying. He's just saying there's no other way. That's all he's saying. There's no other way but the one way, and that is Jesus Christ. And so when the devil says, oh, 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 impossible, oh, impossible, I wonder if that English version translation, I didn't look that up. I wonder if it really says that in the Greek. But anyway, you guys know the truth. You already know it. So act like you know it. Walk like you know it. Follow Jesus. Next week we're going to talk about vindicating how God is vindicating himself and the vindication of God. And it isn't what you think. It isn't in his blowing up the world. That's now not how he's going to get even. So join us next week. God bless. I have an emergency. What is your location? 